Welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the Queen of Prime, Dame Agatha Christie. I'm Catherine Brobeck. And I'm Kemper Donovan. And this week we are doing a Poirot novel. What is it, Kemper? This is Dumb Witness. Mm. Yes, I think it might be sixth of nine Poirot novels that we have in a row now. But who's counting? (laughs) Someone is, apparently. (laughs) This one was first published at the end of 1936 in the U.S., actually, as a serial in the Saturday Evening Post under the much better title of Poirot Loses a Client. And then it was titled again as a serial in the U.K. in the beginning of 1937 in February as Mystery at Little Green House. So you will notice that neither of those titles is Dumb Witness, which we'll get into, but I think is a little bit of a dumb title. See what I did there? In any case, they were both published in book form a little bit later on July 5th, 1937 in the UK by, of course, Collins Crime Club. And then later that same year in the US by, of course, Dodd Mead. But in the US, the title remained Poirot Loses a Client. I'm just going to put it out there right now. I was not a huge fan of this novel. This novel originally existed as a short story, which is something that Mr. John Curran discovered and expounded upon in his fantastic book, Agatha Christie's Secret Notebooks, which we have talked about before. And we will certainly touch on that when we're talking about plot mechanics, because it is published in Mr. Curran's volume. And it's a pretty good short story. And I think that it's a not all that great novel that got expanded from a short story. So it's not quite part of the publication history since the short story wasn't published, but we may as well just put that right there up front that there is an unpublished short story called The Incident of the Dog's Ball. So yeah, moving on, let's talk about our victim, Catherine Brobeck. Who is she? Our victim is Miss Emily Arundel. She's an elderly spinster and she's the owner of Little Greenhouse, which is in Market Basing in Berkshire. She has a history of ailments, I suppose, including some liver problems, uh, which she... Some jaundice. She's very yellow. (laughs) Yes, she's right. Supposedly, she ultimately dies from that, but not before first having a dangerous fall down the stairs, which easily could have killed her first. So the question is, is she murdered? Did she die of natural causes? Shout out, by the way, to Miss Emily Arundel's bone density. As an elderly lady, she obviously was drinking her milk. She had plenty of calcium in those bones not to have sustained a break at at her age down the stairs. Apparently so. I mean, I feel like I would sustain a break (laughs) falling down all those stairs. It reminds me of my favorite little moment in Absolutely Fabulous. Mom. Yeah. Patsy's got osteoporosis. (laughs) She has the lowest bone density on record. Oh, cheers. Cheers. Well done, darling. Gristle clinging on to bone powder. <laughs> One can only live on cigarettes and cocktails for so long. Well, she did eat a chip in 1972. <laughs> There's a lot of reference made to that chip in 72. It might have been 73. I'm not sure. Have you eaten something? No, not since 1973. <laughs> 
In any case, let's talk about our suspects. Of course, they are only suspects if you believe a crime has been committed. But given that this is a 300 and some page mystery novel, we hope that there was a crime committed. We really sure do. And let's just spoil it right now. She was murdered. So yes, (laughs) the suspects of this murder are as follows. First, we have Mr. Charles Arundel, who is a dashing, conniving young con artist and Emily's nephew. Very much the ne'er-do-well. He's always out of money and has a history of forgeries and the like. He is also, of course, because he is good-looking, it is mentioned that he is handsome, so that means he is tan. He has a bronze face. Of course he does. Uh, We also have a sister, uh, Miss Teresa Arendal, and she is very glamorous Mm. and bored and incredibly frivolous with money, and they've both been left money by their father, but they don't have it anymore. They're both spendthrifts. Yeah. You know, now she's a little bit more willing to settle down and she's actually engaged to somebody who's a doctor who is really boring, but uh, she doesn't have any money left. Next, we have Mrs. Bella Tanios, who is another niece of Emily's, but this is not a sibling of Charles and Teresa. This is a first cousin of Charles and, and Teresa. She's a frumster who very much envies the glamorous Teresa and tries to copy her, except with frumpier and cheaper clothes that are always just a little bit out of date and out of touch. Or she, she'll buy a fashionable hat and wear it the wrong way. She is a devoted mother to her two children, and she is married to our next suspect, Dr. Jacob Tanios, who is an affable Greek doctor who seems quite protective of his fretful wife. And by all accounts, he is pleasant and good at his job, but he has bad luck with money. He lost Bella's inheritance. Bella also did have money. And there is a lot of shade thrown at him for being a Greek in this book. Yes, there is. Some of it from our next suspect, uh, Miss Minnie Lawson. Uh, She's Emily's very beleaguered companion. She just seems to be like all mousy nerves and like meek asides and willing very much to be put upon by Emily. I at least was waiting the entire novel for that mask to be ripped off. Right. The mask of, of meekness and unintelligence. And I'm just going to spoil matters right now and say that that was no mask. No, <laughs> it wasn't. I kept thinking it was two. There's only there's a maybe one flash of a moment late in the book where there's right. something else there. But um, but it's minor. It's minor. She really is as she seems, which I appreciated because I feel that the character wearing a mask and acting this way has appeared in so many Christie novels before. So I appreciated that. Well, she, and um, given given that we read a short story in entitled The Companion, where we are led to believe that perhaps companions might not be all that they appear to be. Absolutely. I certainly was expecting a twist. Absolutely. Next, we have Dr. Rex Donaldson, and this is Teresa's fiance, who we mentioned earlier, and the younger of the two town doctors. He would love to be a brilliant, nationally known expert in we don't really have to get into it. I, I certainly don't want Gla- to. Glands. But yeah, glands. Of some <laughs> glands. Kind. That's right. Glands. Yeah. Ductless yeah, glands, ductless I glands. believe. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And then we have um, Ellen the maid who, I guess she's not really a suspect because she's never actually presented as a suspect, but she is in the house when all of this goes down. So in theory, she should be one. She should be a suspect. Never underestimate the hell. Uh, right. Let's talk about the world as it appears to be here. 
We open on Miss Emily Arundel as a well-off old lady. She was once the second of five children, but she's now the only surviving child of the late General Arundel. And her only relations are these two nieces and one nephew to whom she has left her estate if she should pass away. And she really might because she's got a history of liver flare-ups. She's well over 70. She sees the village doctor, Dr. Granger. This is the older doctor within the village. She's been told to watch what she eats so as not to provoke her liver ailment. She also takes some over-the-counter liver aids to uh, keep that ticker ticking and keep on keeping on. She's more or less fine, even though she has her bouts of ill health. And she spends her days playing with her wire-haired terrier, Bob, and chiding her companion, Minnie, and just tending to her gardens in her beautiful Georgian home on the edge of market basing. Life is pretty good for Miss Emily Arundel. Right. So on the Easter weekend, her three relatives, along with Bella's husband, come to stay at Little Greenhouse. And each, in turn, finds some sort of way to basically ask Emily for money, like an advance on their inheritance, more or less. Mm-hmm. Suffice it to say, each, in turn, is rejected by her. But the first person to do so is Charles, and he's been rejected before asking the same thing. And part of the reason he's been rejected before is he was thrown out of Oxford for forgery and forged checks under Emily's name. And he's pretty much unrepentant about the entire thing. Of course, she's not going to give him money. And basically, Charles tells her that if she continues to be such a cheapskate, someone's likely to offer. And in turn, Teresa essentially is not going to get any money because... Emily thinks she's frivolous, and Bella is not going to get any money because Emily thinks her husband is a foreigner. So, on that Easter weekend, everyone's still at the house. They're all in bed. Emily can't sleep, so she gets up in the middle of the night to go downstairs, only to go flying forward at the top of the stairs and fall all the way down. The entirety of the house wakes up. They find her crumpled at the bottom of the stairs. But as we mentioned, amazing bone density. Oh, she is. She is. Well done, Dr. Granger, you know, says she's only banged up. It's, it's crazy that nothing worse happened to her. He can't believe it, but obviously everyone is relieved. So what made her fall? The now-awakened occupants of the house blame it on a ball that belongs to her beloved Bob. The ball should have been put away in this desk drawer where it belongs, and apparently it wasn't. So everyone is blaming the fall on this dog's ball. Right. This would be the incident of the dog's ball that was the title of the original short story. Right. The only person who... Maybe doesn't blame it on Bob is Emily Arundel, who recuperates in her bed. And she does so while just fixating on the fall. And so after stewing about this for days, she writes two letters. One goes to her lawyer, Mr. Purvis. The other letter goes to who else? Monsieur Hercule Poirot. We're almost given a little bit of a clue within this first section because as Emily's goings-on are being narrated in the third person here, we do watch her actually put away the dog's ball Mm -hmm. in the drawer that, that day. Funny thing, when Catherine and I were discussing this novel before reading it, Catherine said, oh, this is the last Poirot novel that Captain Hastings narrates. Except for, of course, our final novel, Curtain. And... 
I started the novel and I was like, Catherine, I think you're wrong because this novel's in the third person only to be faked out by this beginning section of the first couple of chapters. Once this letter gets sent to Mr. Poirot, we then go into a Hastings first person where he says, this was my best approximation after the fact of what happened up until the point when I got this letter. We saw this before in the ABC murders. I hated it then. I hate it in this novel. Well, it doesn't. It, what it does, here's what it does. It makes the entire book exceptionally repetitive. Oh my God, is this book repetitive? I oh. don't understand structurally why that seems like a good idea because you could pick up the book where Captain Hastings starts narrating it. You absolutely could. And that, and that, of course, is where the short story begins. The short story begins with Poirot receiving a letter in his rooms and Hastings is there too, which is how so many of those short right, stories begin. Course. And it's great. I believe, and I'm getting this from John Curran's book, that one of the theories is that the book just needed to be longer for purposes of U.S. serialization. So Gee, she tacked on... <laughs> to, to refer back to um, our dear Mrs. Ariadne Oliver, sometimes you just mm-hmm. have to talk in an extra murder because you realize you don't have enough words. There is no reason for that opening. It's clunky. The shift in point of view is weird. The book restarts. And then repeats itself. Correct. Yes. Because we cut to our dear Hercule who receives this letter on June 28th. He reads it, and Miss Arundel is quite concerned about an incident involving a dog and a ball, but she wants to be exceptionally discreet in investigating the matter. And he shares the letter with Hastings, and it's clear that Poirot is very much intrigued by this letter. Hastings, as usual, is clueless. He doesn't understand why. And Poirot directs him to the date of the letter. And the date is April 17th. Again, this letter was received on June 28th. That's curious. So Poirot decides to go down to the town and investigate. And Hastings loves a good drive out in the open air. It's summer after all. And um, turns out that she's dead. (laughs) Emily Arundel is dead. She died a mere week after writing to him for help. And the house is up for sale. So from there... We then spend a large portion of the book reconstructing what we've through already, Poirot's questioning what we already know. the events that we just that we just witnessed through Captain Hastings's third person perspective. So it's repetitive in that, and then it just becomes repetitive in sort of the more normal, I think, Agatha Christie-ish way that we've seen in some of these novels, whereby people get interviewed and then re-interviewed, and a lot of them are saying the same thing because they're talking about the same thing, right. and that's all fine, but. I think this is actually one of Christie's longer books. It clocks in at almost 320 pages, and it was not a breeze. I mean, it's just deflated because all of the tension of it is sucked out by the beginning of the book. There would be a way, I think, where you could pick up Hastings' narration as though that beginning part was not written by Hastings. But given Mm -hmm. that it picks up and we know that the first part was written by him, it's not even like that's a different perspective. It's very clunkily done, but let's get let's get into what happens because when they do arrive in market basing, Poirot and Hastings pretend to be house shoppers, and they get an order to view Little, Little Greenhouse, which we've mentioned is for sale. And at that point, they take an extensive tour <laughs> and find out through Ellen, through the maid, that Miss um, Arundel left everything house included to her companion of one year, Miss Lawson, fully excluding all of her relatives from her estate. They also meet Bob the dog, who, who talks. Hastings, of course, loves um, <laughs> since he is essentially the human version of a dog. Well, no, and we also get um, we get also get Bob's internal thoughts. Oh boy, do we! Which I believe one reviewer described as embarrassing. <laughs> 
It does not necessarily work so well. It is not her best writing. However, and we were we are just going to take the slightest of detours here into the real life of Agatha Christie because you will notice this book is dedicated to Agatha Christie's dog, to dear Peter, most faithful of friends and dearest of companions, a dog in a thousand. But actually, dear listener, this is not the first book that Christie dedicated to Peter the dog. She dedicated that rotten book, her words, The Mystery of the Blue Train to him <laughs> nearly 10 years earlier in 1928. And just to jog your memory on that one, that is the one that she had to force herself to finish in the aftermath of her disappearance and all the troubles that she had with the breakdown of her first marriage. And it's worth reading that dedication. It's as follows. To the two distinguished members of the OFD, Carlotta and Peter. And Carlotta was Christie's faithful secretary, a.k.a. Carlo. And the OFD was this private joke between them, standing for the Order of the Faithful Dogs. And they used it to figure out which of their remaining friends were still loyal to them after the whole debacle of the disappearance. So there were those who were within the OFD. And Peter actually really did mean a lot to Agatha Christie as the companion that she relied on during that really dark time. Janet Morgan, who, who did a very authoritative biography on Agatha Christie, had, I think, something... So sort of poignant just to say about the influence of Peter on Christie and how important he was to her. She said, Christie felt herself entirely alone. All her love and comfort, she believed, came from a dog, Peter, a wire-haired terrier Rosalind had been given when they moved to Sunningdale. Years later, when Peter was ill, Agatha told her second husband that, though her sorrow might appear foolish, it would not seem so to someone who understood what it was like to have a dog as the sole source of companionship and consolation. So the best thing I got out of this book was actually thinking about how much Agatha Christie loved her dog and the fact that she wrote this book she expanded it from a short story into a novel while peter was still alive sadly peter died in 1938 only one year after this book came out and i don't really know how old he was but he obviously was alive in 1926 when she disappeared so he had to have been at least 12 so he clearly had a nice long life as a dog let's celebrate that love of uh, man's best friend that we can definitely feel that in this book and it kind of might be the best thing I have to say about it. We can, and then we can all be warned that if Agatha dedicated a book to Peter the dog, be wary about reading that book. (laughs) (laughs) This is very true. This is very true. So after this house, this extensive house tour, Poirot and Hastings meet with Dr. Granger, the doctor who attended to Miss Arundel, under the guise of writing a book about General Arundel. And the doctor explains about her liver condition and how it suddenly got worse and how she definitely died from that. Nothing at all suspicious going on. And he directs them to Miss Peabody, who is the village busybody, for more information about General Arundel. And Miss Peabody totally knows right away that they are not writing a book about General Arundel and that they're just fishing for information. And she gives Poirot the lowdown on each of the aforementioned suspects and notes how suspicious it is that Emily blocked them all from inheriting when she didn't even seem to like her companion, Miss Lawson, all that much. Back at Little Greenhouse, after all of that, Poirot then gets the servants to reveal that they were the ones who mailed the letter to him, only finding it after Emily's death stuck in her paper blotter. Apparently, even though Miss Emily Arundel was a smart woman, she was also a bit forgetful. So it was not out of character for her to stuff something (laughs) into, you know, a pocket and just forget all about it, which is a little curious given that this was a letter written to a famous detective Uh, about thinking she was murdered. So that's, um, when we get to plot credibility, uh, that's, that's an issue. Yeah, it's an issue. And then also, by the way, at this point, we're now what a hundred pages into this book. And now Paro's like, well, there was probably a murder here. 
And it's yeah. a little bit like, well, I would hope so because otherwise, <laughs> otherwise we've been reading for a long time. Um, well, and there's a lot of tedious back and forth between Poirot and Hastings, wherein Hastings doesn't believe that there's a murder and Poirot is insisting that there is a murder. And it's so tedious because we're reading a murder mystery. So we know that ultimately there's a murder and we know that Hastings is always wrong. So let's just get I, on with I it. Mean, I it liked, there's I so liked, much I, of it. I liked the Hastings Poirot back and forth. If we're going to give merits to anything in this, I enjoy any sort of Hastings Poirot repartee. But you know, I would normally say that this book broke me of that. I actually <laughs> reached my limit and I was, I was annoyed with the extreme obtuseness of Hastings in this one. It just, it passed the point of believability for me. This is the first time I said, you know what? I want less Poirot and Hastings. You know, you've said that before and then we're disappointed when Hastings disappeared for a while. So I, know, I, 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 I know, would just watch you what you're what? saying here. <laughs> This is true, and maybe I'll eat my words, but that's what I'm saying right now. Well, so here's the thing. Poirot does then what Poirot always does, which is he investigates. So now, yes, he does. now that he has started investigating, we get to now meet our entire cast of suspects. Again. All over again. All over again. <laughs> All over again. The first person we meet is Teresa. She's a very modern 1930s apartment. It's all chrome, very spare. Mm-mm. She's very glamorous and sharp looking. Charles then shows up, even though Teresa said he was out of the country. He's like, here I am. And he admits to Poro that in fact he knew the will was changed. And then he tries to convince Teresa that she also knew. Mm-hmm. He says that he told her, but we can tell that something weird is going on there. Right. And so they end up then sending Poro off to go meet with Bella Tanios, who Poro discovers is this horribly fretful person. They're essentially living hand to mouth in this hotel before going back to Smyrna. She's originally very fearful for her husband, because she believes that Emily must have written Poirot a letter essentially accusing uh, Jacob Tanios of trying to kill her. And then they meet Dr. Tanios as well, and he's jovial but concerned about his wife, and he seems disappointed about the outcome of the will but not devastated. He seems to have moved on. But then at the end of this interview, it gets even weirder because then Belitanios, she kind of follows them out, right? Yes. And she says, she indicates without saying it because she's interrupted by her husband that she is now fearful of her husband. She seems to be afraid of something uh, having to do with him, but she wasn't able to say what. And Poirot and Hastings are kind of like, what? Okay. Right, they, because they really she's, yeah, she on. stops talking as soon as her husband reappears. So they, they don't get the full story from her. Right. And then they get to talk to Miss Lawson, who lives in a very, very crowded flat in London now. Um, And she's inherited, uh, gosh, a lot of money. It's like 400,000 pounds. I think it's just shy of 400,000 pounds, you know. So then finally, Poirot and Hastings also visit the sisters' trip. That's trip with two peas. They are two village spiritualists in market basing who Miss Lawson swears by and who she forced poor Emily Arundel to dine with. And they both insist that shortly before Emily's death, she had an aura about her mm-hmm. and that um, there was sort of this, this ribbon coming out of her mouth that was part of the aura. And Miss Lawson was there too. And she says she, she also saw it and that the spirits were trying to speak from her mouth. So that's 
interesting. Let's talk about the world as it actually is, Catherine. And as is sometimes the case in a Christie novel, we've got some red herrings to get through, don't we? Oh, we do. Let's just say this. Most of the book is red herrings. Right. And by the way, to give the book credit, Hastings at one point does make reference to how many side issues there are in this case. (laughs) He does. Which is almost the exact terminology we use. We call them side plots. I mean, this is a tried and true part of the Christie mystery puzzle, right? It's separating the side plots from the main mystery plot. So some of these are better than others. There certainly are a lot of them. I think if the repetition hadn't been an issue, we wouldn't be as irked by the number of them as it sounds like we both were. But in any case. Red herring number one. Money has gone missing from Emily's desk over the Easter weekend. A number of people know about this. The servants know about it. Presumably Emily did. Miss Lawson knows about it. What is the solution to this? The solution is Charles stole a few pound notes. Um, and we pretty much know this early on. After Emily rejects his request for additional cash, he's playing with Bob. And Bob's ball, again, let's reiterate, Bob's ball lives in a desk drawer. But the adjacent desk drawer also has a lot of cash in it. So, you know, he just takes some. Red herring number two. The gardener notices that weed killer, which just is arsenic, has gone missing from the tin in his potting shed when he talks with Poirot and Hastings. And the solution there is that it did indeed go missing because Teresa Arundel stole it while contemplating murdering her aunt. (laughs) (laughs) So we're going to spoil right now. Teresa didn't do it, but she was thinking about it. And then she decided, no, I'm not that psycho. In fact, fact, Charles Arundel also thought about it, but he did not go as far as stealing the actual arsenic. However, he did think about it enough that he doesn't use the word arsenic when he's describing various poisoning methods to Poirot and Hastings. Right, and a corollary to this red herring is the fact that we're told that their mother was a famous... Possible murderess. Possible murderess, that she was acquitted, but under dubious circumstances of this infamous murder. So perhaps there's bad blood in in these two. Right. Also, perhaps the best detail of the entire book is that uh, the Arendelle's father seemed to be like this sort of, you know, nebbishy, upright guy in the village. And apparently he just was like writing fan letters to this murderess on trial. And when she's finally acquitted, he shows up and then he marries her. Basically, it's like he was watching a lot of headline news and decided that he was just going to marry a uh, famous possible criminal. He's like those people that write letters to convicts in prison and kind of like fall in love with them or just like obsess over them. I guess it works for him because they got married and had two lovely, lovely children. And and he died after her, so she did not even murder him. And you know what? Neither of her children ultimately are murderers, so... Correct. Maybe she really was innocent. Possibly, although her children are... Uh... They're pieces of work. <laughs> Let's put it that way. They're pieces of work. All right, so red herring number three is that there was a lot of visiting going on since they were all freaking out about what Emily Arundel was going to do with her money, uh, and they all needed money, but the, the visits turn out to not be of any importance whatsoever in solving this mystery. None. Then red herring number four is the original fall. Because it seems like a much bigger deal than it is because of the whole dog and the ball nonsense. It has nothing to do with the way that the murder was actually put into motion. Right. Like, it's not... Right, and so... It, it really has nothing to do with it. Right. Which and, is so frustrating. And there's a double... It's a double <laughs> red herring because Emily Arendelle's dying words are about a dog and a picture being a jar. And right. that's what the servants hear. And Poirot, you know, takes very little time to realize that in fact this means it 
seemingly hideous ceramic jar in the living room that has a um, quirky painting of a dog that is trapped outside all night. Well, and you know what's funny? According again to Christie scholar John Curran, it wasn't on a jar. It was actually a picture that exists in Agatha Christie's home in Greenway. So the theory is that perhaps it was an inspiration for for the novel. Great. So we got that picture to blame. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I mean, the thing is, it's irrelevant. I mean, the, Bob, here's the thing. Bob has nothing to do with this. Bob was not guilty. Bob did not leave the ball at the top of the stairs. Here's the, here's the really annoying thing. The book is called Dumb Witness. As so, though the dog witnessed the crime. As though the, the dog witnessed a murder, right. which is, you know, it, which is at least it could be interesting. It could be used to interesting effect. It would at least be creepy or atmospheric if we know for sure that this dog that can't talk witnessed the murder. The dog didn't witness the murder. The dog neither witnessed the murder that seemed to have to do with its ball. Right. Nor did the dog witness or have anything to do with the way that the murder was ultimately enacted. So the title Dumb Witness is just completely irrelevant. So, yeah, I mean, the red herring is Bob has nothing to do with this. With anything. No. Yeah. All right. So actual clues, Kemper. Yes. Actual clues. All right. Let's let's talk some actual clues. So Poirot pretty much immediately realizes that Emily fell down the stairs because a nail had been hammered into the wall um, across from the stair banister, which means that someone had obviously put one end of a piece of string around the head of the nail and then stretched it across to the banister, thereby creating a tripwire. When pressed on this, Miss Lawson, whose bedroom is right by the top of the stairs, remembers the sound of hammering, and then she also remembers seeing, in the reflection of her mirror in her room, a woman bent on the steps in the middle of the night in a dressing gown with a large brooch on that dressing gown and the letters T-A in that brooch. And she also knows that Teresa Arundel wears just such a elegant brooch. So, what is the deduction here? Well, first of all, that sounds very convenient, but... (laughs) (laughs) Well, and also, what what person wears a brooch on their dressing gown? A, who wears a brooch (laughs) on their dressing gown? B, who chooses to set up a tripwire in the middle of the night next to an open bedroom (laughs) door when the person who lives in that bedroom is sleeping in it? And C, no. But, in any case... (laughs) The deduction here is that either Miss Lawson is lying or Teresa Arundel was the one who set up Emily for a fall, which would seem to indicate that she was the one who ultimately murdered her, even though she didn't die from that fall. Or, wait a second. Again, where did she see this woman, this brooch, T.A.? That's right, in a mirror. So, possibly... When she said that she saw T.A., does that mean that the letters were reversed and the brooch actually read A.T.? But then... We don't have anyone within our story who has the initials AT. Or do we? That'll be another clue. Just keep that one in mind. All right. So actual clue number two. Emily takes some tinctures, I guess, for her liver ailments uh, for digestive ease, um, including the sort of over-the-counter magic Dr. Lockbarrow's liver capsules. Liver pills are totally like a thing that people would pop. 
to make themselves a general, feel better. A general health aid. Yeah, yeah. They're kept in the dining room to be taken with a meal. You know, our deduction here is uh, beware of any kind of capsule that can be emptied out and that is kept in a public room because guess what happens? Mm-hmm. They can be meddled with. Do we need to bring up the chocolate box and those gargantuan chocolates that were <laughs> stuffed with? <laughs> stuffed with like 80 pills. <laughs> These chocolates are delicious. <laughs> wow, it doesn't taste like there are 75 pills in this chocolate. All right, actual clue number three. And this is one that we've seen before in Christie, which is the introduction of some element of spiritualism mm-hmm. that seems fallacious and ridiculous, and which, of course, is not a spiritual phenomenon, but which has a rational explanation that turns right. out to be key to solving the mystery. So here, um, the spiritualist sisters and Miss Lawson were not wrong about seeing this aura and this ribbon coming out of uh, Miss Arundel's mouth. The deduction, and, and this really, really is the hardest to swallow, pun not intended, maybe a little intended, <laughs> but I guess if we are medical doctors or <laughs> we have a lot of spare time to consult medical handbooks that we might have left on our shelves after reading The Mysterious Affair at Styles and figuring out how bromide powders dissolve in solution, we might pick back those books and take a look-see at what might cause something to look as if it were glowing coming out of a person's mouth. And phosphorus actually causes illumination. It caused her breath to glow, apparently. It does make sense that phosphorus as an element, I mean, phosphorescence is a version of luminescence. I don't know if it would exactly appear as a a glowing ribbon coming out of someone's mouth, but I suppose if they had a lot of breath coming out there. I suppose. A really astute medically trained reader might know that this just might be a case of phosphorus poisoning, especially because phosphorus poisoning also causes jaundice and liver failure. So in one who had already been suffering from jaundice and liver failure, it is an ingenious means of poisoning since it just seems as if poor Miss Arundel died of natural causes due to her previous existing condition. There is a corollary clue to this, which further enhances its ridiculousness. And that is that apparently when phosphorus is within one's breath, it smells really bad. Like and garlic, it, apparently. It gives off a garlicky smell, just a really strong odor. And there is this clunky bit of information we're given during the interview with Dr. Granger in which we find out that Dr. Granger has no sense of smell. But I underlined that when I came across it and wrote in the margin, clue. Because it's so clearly a clue. <laughs> it is not it is not laid in there with the usual finesse that we come to expect from No, it's otherwise just really, really like a really weird thing for Dr. Granger to just tell Poirot. To be like, yeah, by the way, I can't smell. So that would be how the phosphorus poisoning slipped by the doctor's notice since he did not notice the garlicky smell. And I suppose no one else did either. She'd had a curry at dinner. Sure. So I mean, I suppose it could have just been a strong smell in general. Not the best clue but there but there we are let's talk about actual clue number four let's just say it's a little bit odd that mrs tanios when she's first interviewed by paron hastings is fearful for her husband cut to you know 20 minutes later and she appears to be terrified of her husband so somebody who goes 180 in the course of 20 some minutes something is up with bella 
Tanios. And going off that, our actual clue number five, if we remember our four L's of motive within murder mysteries, everyone in the story certainly has lucre as a motivation here. They all want Emily Arundel's money. But there's really only one person who has a little bit more than that. She's got some jealousy. She's got some resentment. Loathing, one might say. Yeah, some loathing. So she's got a little bit of loathing to add to that lucre. And that, of course, would be Bellatanios. And then our final actual clue, which would be number six, has to do with that mirror business in the brooch. Because we mentioned that if Miss Lawson is telling the truth and she saw TA in the mirror, that means the brooch read AT. And we said, well, no one seems to have the initials AT. Well, let's go back to one of our beloved novels in which this was a fresh idea, Peril at Endhouse. Beware the nicknames of any major character within a novel. And we do know that Bella's mother was Arabella Arendelle. So chances are Bella Tanios' name is actually Arabella Tanios, i.e. A-T. Bella did it. She did it wearing a super outdated brooch on her dressing (laughs) gown. (laughs) The gist of it is she was real unhappy living in Smyrna with her apparently legitimately really nice Greek husband. So first she tried to kill her aunt in an accident in the house, not realizing, of course, that she would be seen setting up that tripwire by Miss Lawson and that it would not work. But no worries. She had a plan B and she filled her aunt's liver capsules with phosphorus. I mean, it's unclear how many of them she filled with phosphorus, if it was just one or a couple of them, but it certainly wasn't all of them. So she knew that she wasn't likely to take the poison capsule anytime soon, but that she would eventually. And at that point, Bella herself would, of course, be long gone and have a solid alibi. And barring that, she also bought some chloral sleeping draught. She obviously did not expect to be disinherited. So much to her chagrin after the murder via phosphorus poisoning came off, she was obviously upset about that. But then she had a plan C. Plan D almost, because, you know, we have the accident, the phosphorus, the chloral. The chloral, right. Yeah, that's true. So her plan D is now to pretend to be really afraid of her husband, playing off everyone's fears of him as a foreigner, and to thereby get into the good graces of Miss Lawson, who's now almost 400,000 pounds the richer. And that's why Bella alone does not want to contest the will. And I guess we can argue that it's during that interview with Barrow and Hastings that she realizes that her cousins are going to do so. So she hatches this scheme. She doesn't want any investigation to be done. She wants sleeping dogs to lie, pun intended, (laughs) and to guilt Miss Lawson into parting with as much of her money as possible. She also still conveniently has that bottle of chloral. Right. And Poro totally plays into this. He separates her from her husband for her own quote-unquote, safety, moving her between hotels. And this is skillfully done within the novel because we, the reader, are also led to believe that that is what he's doing, that he's doing this for her safety. This is is the, from a mechanics perspective, this is the thing that's best done in the novel. Absolutely. Poirot also, while he's doing this, hands Bellatenio's an envelope with his solution to the case because he says he wants her opinion on it. And she calls to tell him that he's quite right and she'd like to discuss it with him the next day. And the next day, Poirot gets a call from a hysterical Miss Lawson who says that the hotel found Bella's body 
in bed dead from an accidental overdose of chloral, her children having been sent away beforehand. Essentially, yes, Monsieur Poirot, the extra-legal justice provocateur extraordinaire, right. has struck again and provoked her into killing herself. One, it would be better for the children, and two, his client throughout this entire thing has been Emily Arundel, and he does not think that she wants any scandal. Yeah, she wants no drama. The funny thing is, of course, Poirot's never met the woman, so... Right. Which is, again, why I appreciate the title Poirot Loses a Client. The other twist is that part of the reason Miss Lawson is um, so fretful and nervous is Emily Arundel was using that second will exactly as you would think that she was using it. She used it as a scare tactic for Charles. She never intended to keep it that way, and so when she's on her deathbed, she desperately is trying to change the will, or in theory, destroy it. But Miss Lawson, who has broken into the desk because she is a busybody, refuses and like lies to Emily Arundel because she wants the money. Unfortunately, Miss Lawson had no clue how much money she was getting. And the fact that she right. ended up getting almost 400,000 pounds has left her absolutely racked with guilt. Everyone really thought it was a couple of thousand pounds, maybe a couple of tens of thousand pounds. It's a big shock within the novel that Emily Arundel was sitting on as much money as she did, which she seems to have done by virtue of sound investments and frugal living for decades. Right. So Miss Lawson ultimately gives into that guilt and she confesses at the end of this denouement as to what she did. And the apportioning of the money is redrawn through arrangements with the lawyer, Mr. Purvis, and it is split among the siblings, Arundel, Charles and Teresa, the two Tanios children and Miss Lawson. Charles runs through it almost immediately, moves to British Columbia. <laughs> be afraid, British Columbia. Be very afraid. Right. Uh, Teresa and Dr. Donaldson marry. She comes down from her wild and crazy days, and he quickly rises in his profession. They seem to be very happy and friendly with Captain Hastings, which is interesting. Interesting, uh, yes. Is he going back to Argentina? What happened with his wife? I Unclear. don't quite understand. <laughs> Not really um, mentioned. And then Hastings adopts Bob the dog, even though he was actually given to Poirot as a gift, but as we said before, Hastings is essentially a dog in human form, so he is much the better match for Bob. And that is the end of the novel. Okay. Uh, okay. Well, before we get to rankings, <laughs> let's we talk, talk about the adaptation. Yeah, let's talk about the adaptation. It's better than the novel. The adaptation is definitely better than the novel. The adaptation also falls at a curious moment within the series because it is the last episode of series slash season six. Before the hiatus. And then there was this years-long break. Four years, right? Four years, yeah. It aired in 1996, and then season seven wasn't until 2000. And season six itself was aired over more than a year because they were holding on to the episodes and they didn't know what if they were even going to make more Poirot. So the beginning of season six was in 1995, and then the end of it was 1996. So it was all a bit of a mess. A lot of the episodes within that season are not David Suchet's favorite, but this episode was actually his favorite of the season. And he claims in his book that Dumb Witness is one of the, quote, best loved of all day MAGA stories, but mm, I, I don't know if I agree with him where on that is one. He, yeah, where is he getting that from? 
I don't know. The only um, tidbit that I found interesting from his chronicling of filming this one is that he, like Poirot, fell in love with the adorable terrier that they used in the adaptation. He really is adorable. Very, very cute dog. And by the way, the dog in the adaptation is the dumb witness. Uh, Yes, they make good on the title Dumb Witness in the adaptation, which is one of, of many improvements. And the dog's real name is Snubby. (laughs) He also had good things to say, and I do agree with him, even though we acknowledge how silly it is. The special effects sequence in which Emily Arundel dies is actually kind of creepy and well done. Yeah. The way that the adaptation visualized her death and the phosphorus coming out of her mouth and forming a halo around her was certainly much better than what I envisioned when I was reading the novel. But I will say this, and this is actually, I think will be a good transition into plot mechanics because this I thought was by far the smartest change to the story within the adaptation. And it points to one of the biggest weaknesses of the plot mechanics. So where else could be discovered this phosphorus? I suggest, mes amis, in a liver capsule that was placed in this box that was always by the side of Emily Arundel. This also answers for me a question most puzzling. Why was she murdered after the changing of the will? Mesdames et Messieurs, I can now reveal to you that she was murdered before. In the adaptation, Bella is actually aware that the will changed. She does know that Emily Arundel has changed her will, but she had already put the pills in the box, the poison pills. It's all kind of in process when the will changes, and it's hard to undo what she did. You can't unring a bell? Yeah, you can't unring a bell. I mean, I suppose you could argue that she could have run into the the house and just destroyed the entire box, but that would have been suspicious. I think it's at least believable that at that point she would have let matters play out. Within the novel, I think it is such a weakness that Emily Arundel has this idea to disinherit her two nieces and her nephew, and that she only tells her nephew and then just assumes that her nephew is going to tell everyone else. That's well, ridiculous. I, well, here's the, here's the thing. She assumes, right, that he's going to tell his sister. Yes. She does not think that Bella is a threat. I mean, there's it's it's made very clear. Of course she doesn't. But even beyond that, the notion that they wouldn't all know about the disinheriting, like the second that it happened, the second that she told anyone, the maid, let alone Charles, is also ridiculous. Like, they were all so on top of this and so all about it. It's basically, it just feels like Christy is trying to have her cake and eat it too. The other thing that really frustrated me about the solution here is that Poirot, at least least once, if not twice within the novel, says to Hastings, well, we need to look at the psychology of the murder itself. And having just come off of cards on the table, I was like, oh, okay, I can get behind that. All right, let me think about that. But the thing is, we have our first attempt at murder, which is with the tripwire, and then we have a second attempt at murder with the poison pills, and they're totally different, and they're totally unrelated, and they're committed by the same person. So that, to me, goes out the window and doesn't help solve it at all. It's just a bit of a mess. Poirot himself makes the point several times that, you know, one suggests a crime of, like, convenience, right? And somebody who doesn't have, like, a scientific background. And the other clearly suggests some sort of medical or scientific knowledge because you'd Mm -hmm. have to be a chemist, right, or such. To know about phosphorus. And I just think that if Emily Arundel, she seems to have mainly suspected Charles of being the one who probably tried to kill her by pitching her over the stairs, then... Wouldn't she have just cut out Charles? 
from the will. And I know she wasn't sure. So I guess Empoirot tries to say she had a distinct feeling of spite against her entire family, but I didn't necessarily feel that. But that also feels convenient as a motivation. I just didn't buy it. I just, I didn't buy the changing of the will and the way that the first murder not working also then just doesn't lead in any way whatsoever to the second murder. It just, to me, it did not feel like she was totally playing fair. I, I, I think it's a really hard one to solve as an astute reader. And, you know, we t- I talked a little bit about the clue of the doctor not being able to smell was totally clunky. And we have the mysterious affair at Styles problem of needing to consult a drug manual to figure out the means of poisoning with phosphorus. And for once, I also think that that goes to plot credibility as well. You know, we've gotten into this habit of talking about either plot mechanics or plot credibility are going to be the stronger within a novel, but in some superlative novels, they're both strong. Well, unfortunately, I think this is a novel where they're both pretty weak because a lot of the clunkiness of the plot mechanics are going to character and not believing that these characters are going to do what they did. Emily Arundel not sending that letter to Poirot from the get-go already, I don't believe it. Emily Arundel changing the will uh, and disinheriting her entire family, but only telling one of them and then just assuming that the rest of them are going to find out or not caring if they find out. Don't believe it. A murderer using a tripwire and setting it up outside of someone else's bedroom in the middle of the night with an open door and a huge brooch on their dressing gown. Don't believe it. Then don't believe that that same person then just has this this plan B via this scientific knowledge. It's just not ringing true. I will grant you all of that. But I will say that the actual motive is entirely credible. Oh, the motive is credible because it's lucre. But interestingly, the additional motive of the loathing and the jealousy, it's not less believable, but it seems unnecessary. I Well, it made it certainly made her seem more vicious. She you know, wanted her cousin's lifestyle. Although I have to be honest, living in the Mediterranean doesn't sound all that bad. Seriously. She knows about the phosphorus because her father was a professor, right? That also goes back to her obsession with the education for her children which is one of the driving factors about why she wants to be in England. So, I mean, I guess it makes a certain degree of sense, but uh, yeah. (laughs) So you were actually a little bit higher on these than than I was. I think you had come out on a five in plot mechanics and a seven in plot credibility. We gave Lord Edgerard Dyes a six in plot credibility. We gave the Sitterford Mystery a six in plot credibility. I certainly don't think that Dumb Witness does better than those, which is why I would give it a, I would give it a six. And then plot mechanics, I think it's is particularly weak. And we've certainly given out fours before, usually to thrillers. I'm not going to lie. There are, in fact, right. I, think I was going to say, I, yeah, I was going to say, I didn't think that we'd given out a four at anything that wasn't a thriller, which is why I was sort of on a five. But I will say this. I think that this from a plot mechanics perspective is the weakest mystery puzzle that we've read. Worse than blue train. Yeah. I do. Blue Train got a five. There are other reasons why this is perhaps just slightly better than the mystery of the Blue Train, but I think plot mechanics of the, that a four is deserved. I guess I can be sold on that. Let's talk about our series-long characters, and I alluded to the fact that I actually reached a breaking point with the Poirot-Hastings banter. There was still a lot that I enjoyed, to be fair. It's I not... mean, yes, you're right. Hastings is especially dense in a lot of this. To me, the denseness strained credulity. What I did appreciate is this reference where Poirot recounts four 
previous murderers when he's talking about how some people can seem so genial when they're actually crazy and awful. And he says, Norman Gale, Evelyn Howard, Mm -hmm. Dr. Shepard, and Knighton, which is referencing (laughs) Death in the Clouds, The Mysterious Affair at Styles, The Murder of Roger Ackroyd, and The Mystery of the Blue Train. We also get Murder in Mesopotamia references, Murder on the Orient Express. So there's good good continuity. And actually, I do need to, for someone who was just saying that he didn't like any of the Hastings Poirot stuff, I just have to pull out because I thought it was so funny right in the beginning of the book when Poirot and Hastings first come to market basing. Here's what Hastings says. Dear me, I complained, there is something about this place that makes me feel extremely conspicuous. As for you, Poirot, you look positively exotic. You think it is noticed that I am a foreigner? Yes. The fact cries aloud to heaven, I assured him. Can you think of what movie that brought to mind? What? Nothing. You stick out like a sore thumb around here. (laughs) Me? What about you? I fit in better than you. At least I'm wearing cowboy boots. Oh, yeah, you blend. All right, I'm, I think I'm coming over more to your uh, to your thinking on this. I mean, Hastings' commentary on all of Poirot's lies is also pretty much enjoyable because that's true. Poirot, Poirot spends a lot of time just making random stuff up to the people in the town. I appreciate all of that. I appreciate all of Poirot's um, fake family members. Yes, I would give it a six. I would. Will you agree to a six? The, te- yeah. the tedium, mm-hmm. I think, is still takes it down for me, but. Yeah, that's fine. All right, let's do a six. And now let's talk about book-specific characters, because this is bad. Yeah, it's bad. To me, this book felt like a major step back. And I think this is where the fact that she was expanding on a short story really hurt her, because I think she just added a lot of fluff. And a lot of it is um, telegraphed in -hmm. a way that I really didn't appreciate. Like, Charles is supposed to be charming, right? So charming that people just let him get away with all of these sort of crimes. Except we don't really ever see that. He's not particularly charming at any point in this story. We're told, never shown, that Charles right. is is charming. And, and We're told that Teresa is, like, so glamorous, but we get, like, sort of one description of her, which does not actually make her seem glamorous at all, frankly. No, and um, not only that. It makes her that. seem a little spooky. Yeah, and it is true. She totally does seem spooky. And, and more damning, I think, is that Christy totally recycles that full of life business that she used when describing uh-huh. egg lit and gore in three act tragedy. She was just right. so full of life. And we're told that here and we're never shown we it. I did not feel that all. she was full of life. And this is the no. worst. I actually pulled this line. And of course it's from Hastings since he's our narrator when he's describing Teresa Arundel's voice, her voice was wonderfully exciting, warm, exhilarating, intoxicating. Okay. I, I, what, what, I don't what believe you. I don't no, believe I don't... you. No, not at all. And at some level, we're supposed to be rooting for her and Dr. Donaldson oh, so that she can no, settle no, down. No. And there's yeah. just not, he's, he, Dr. Donaldson's creepy too. The best person, and I still didn't love her, is Miss Peabody, actually, because, but she, right. even she's a bit of a cartoon. She's the brash old lady who's just enjoying making everyone uncomfortable. And she says shocking things like she says that Bella's mother, Arabella, had a face like a scone, which I, I appreciated. <laughs> but even so, I actually think a four is almost a little generous in this because it really is dreadful. And we've certainly given fours before. We gave a four to Death in the Clouds, which also also had its problems with, oh, yeah. with characters. Also does not have great characters. So no, I mean I don't not. I don't regret I don't regret that decision. But And we've um, gone lower. We've gave a three to murder on the links and a three to the big four. So I mean I think it's particularly 
bad. I feel passionately about a four. Yeah. I think it's a disappointment more than anything because I feel like we've come so far that it feels like a letdown. Yeah, yeah. I would say a four. Okay, great. Let's talk about setting and tone. It's fine. It's fine. Interestingly, market basing is very obviously based on a real village. It's the village of Wallingford where Christy bought Winterbrook House some years before. And you can tell in the specificity of the village plan and the relation of Emily Arundel's house to the center of town. But even so, it didn't quite come alive for me. You know, there were some contemporary references. I was actually jarred, but in a good way, at the reference to Mickey Mouse. Bella's daughter draws Mickey Mouse. And I was like, oh, Mickey Mouse. Then I thought, oh, well, it is the 30s. Like, yeah, Mickey Mouse was popular. (laughs) Disney existed. That's kind of interesting. But... To me, it just felt very blah. And the the tone, I actually think, is a major issue because of the that, oh, that the third place. person opening. And then the Hastings' yeah. first person is not nearly as charming as it could be. I think a five is a little too kind. We gave a four to the murder at the vicarage. Wow. <laughs> and the mysterious affair at Styles. I mean, a four feels right. Any lower than that, I think, is too much because it's not it's not like staring us in the face at how bad yeah, it is. That's, but. that's fine. Okay, so let's do a four. And then let's talk really quickly about Stuck in His Time because I think we agree here that there are a lot of digs at Greeks and Turks. And this actually is interesting because we had multiple references in cards on the table to British xenophobia, specifically of Argentines, the Portuguese, and Greeks. And also Turks, like she seems to group those together as um, nationalities that British people don't like, but she's not doing so in an approving way. No, well, especially because the Greek in this book gets completely vindicated by the end of it. Absolutely, and the xenophobia that he experiences is completely unwarranted. Yeah, and his evil, and his essentially evil wife is pitting everybody against him just by virtue of drumming up xenophobia. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I would say the speciousness of that xenophobia is a minor theme of the book. We do get a casual N word as a chapter heading, and it does also appear within the book. But well, it's part of an expression which I actually had to look it up because I will be honest, I was like, uh, (laughs) yikes. Yeah. But a relatively commonplace expression. Um, Of the the time. Yeah. So, right. I have a hard time sort of giving any deduction for that as as jarring. As jarring. As it is. As it is. We're agreed on giving this, this one zero deductions. Yes. So that gives us a grand total of four plus six plus six plus four plus four. So 24 points. And interestingly, that puts Dumb Witness in a three-way tie. So we need to figure out where we would place this, Catherine. With the murder on the links and the mystery of the blue train. That seems accurate. (laughs) It does seem accurate. And here's what I would say. I think the mystery of the blue train should remain the lowest ranked of those three. Okay. I think that Dumb Witness probably fits in between them. I could go either way on that. I know. But it seems, it seems, that seems right. So we're putting it ahead of the mystery of the blue train, but behind the yes. on the links. That puts Dumb Witness in 16th place. That is 16 of 21. Maybe the best way to put it is that the only mystery puzzle ranked lower than Dumb Witness is the mystery of the blue train. After that, in 18th through 21st place, we have Why Didn't They Ask Evans, The Seven Dials Mystery, and then, of course, The Big Four and The Secret of Chimneys tied for last place. This is ranked really low, and I think that that is warranted. Apologies to anybody who really rides for this 
one. Um, Which but I don't think anyone does. I mean, we both had a, a vague sense, right, that this was one of the lesser valued Christie's before rereading it. In the context of other Christie mysteries. This is not a successful one within the, the larger no, context not. of Christie mysteries. Correct. dumb witness join us next time for a short story episode we will be covering the listerdale mystery that is the titular short story within the listerdale mystery short story collection that's another 1930s short story collection of christie's we already covered one story from there philomel cottage Mm -hmm. and just to give you a heads up our next novel will be death on the nile oh very exciting very exciting with two adaptations of course our Suchet and then our rather well-known 70s glossy adaptation not to mention a third upcoming and a third upcoming so we will have to do another special on the fly episode of that Kenneth Branagh delight when it comes out in a movie theater near us and in the meantime we would love to hear from you you can always email us at allaboutthedame at gmail.com or find us on twitter at allaboutthedame you can find Catherine at Brobcat or find us on Facebook. Our Facebook page is all about Agatha and our Instagram is all about Agatha. If you should so desire, please take a moment to rate and review us. We really appreciate all those who have and encourage everyone to do so. It helps others find the podcast and we will see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.